Well, good morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, if you're like me, I grew up in a home where I was taught some things about the Bible, about God, and about Jesus that I just accepted were true because mom and dad told me they were true. And I saw God a little bit like I saw Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy. I just believe in those things because I was told to believe in them. But as I got older, I started to have some pretty serious questions about my faith. And I wondered if what I had been taught was true or if I had just accepted it because I had learned it at such an early age. And um, when I was in high school, like I said, I had some pretty serious questions of my faith and I was a little afraid to ask these questions because I felt like I was supposed to know the answers. But I discovered that as I was searching for these answers that I wasn't the only one asking these questions, that there were other Christians asking these questions. And there were skeptics that were asking these questions, but they weren't looking for the evidence. How many of you have ever played the game Jenga? Okay, a lot of us. It's a game where you line up these blocks in order to form a tower, and then you pull the blocks off one by one until the tower falls. It's a pretty fun game, but you really can't win. You can only lose. But it's fun to take out these blocks until the tower collapses. And I think these questions can have the same effect on our faith. If they go unanswered, then before long, they begin to weaken our foundation. It makes it difficult for us to build a lifelong relationship with Jesus. And so in this series, we're going to start off by asking some questions about God that many people have. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis simply means beginnings. We're going to be in chapter 13. And in Genesis 13, we read about a couple named Abraham and Sarah. We're going to learn about this story that unfolds in their lives, but we're going to stop along the way and ask some of these questions about God. So Genesis 13, verse 14, the Lord. And let's just stop there for a moment because it already brings up a question that a lot of people have about God, and it's this. Where does God come from? Because the existence of God in Scripture is just presumed. What are the first words of the Bible? In the beginning, God. Well, where did God come from? Who created God? The Bible teaches us in John 1, 3, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, he's always been. Revelation 22 says that he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. But this idea that God has always been, that's just difficult for us to understand. Everything we know in life that lives has a beginning date and an ending date. Everything that has life, plants, animals, humans, has a date that they began and were born. Albert Einstein proved that matter, and all of us are matter, is inseparable from time and space. And so it's hard for us to understand how God could be outside of those things. And yet, he created those things. He's not bound by them. When we try to understand God's existence, we just naturally try to fit him into our realm, into our way of thinking. And as humans, when we think of time, we think of time in a linear fashion, like a timeline, where there's a beginning and an end, where one second follows the next second. But with God, instead of there being a timeline, think in terms of a circle. There is no beginning. There is no end. He just always has been. 
And the temptation we have is to try to fit God into our frame of reference. In logic, this would be called a category mistake. We're trying to make God like us. We're finite, but he's infinite. So just a few things to think about as we talk about where did God come from. First, understand that most scientists would agree that our universe had to have a starting point. And something can't come from nothing. So somewhere there had to be an uncaused cause. Any belief system would require there to be an uncaused cause, something that has always been to cause everything that we now know in our world. Logically, that something has to be infinite, something with no beginning or end. But again, because we're finite, it's hard for us to accept it or understand it. Secondly, we shouldn't be surprised that as the creation, we can't fully understand the creator. St. Augustine points out that if we could completely understand God, he wouldn't be God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now think about this. God was able to create something as microscopic as DNA. It's the genetic blueprint for all living creatures. And one gram of DNA can hold up to 215 petabytes of information. That means that you could store 36 million digital copies of Avengers Endgame in one gram of DNA. Yet we can't even see it with the human eye. God created that. And God wired the brain with 10,000 million nerve cells. And when working together, our brain can do what 1,000 supercomputers cannot. And that's just the male brain. We know the female brain is much more complex than that. (laughs) It's incredible what God has created. The sun is so powerful that every second of every day and night, it creates 13 million times more energy than the United States will use in an entire year. And if God could create something like DNA, if he could wire our brains with a 1,000 million nerve cells, if God could create the sun and we can't understand any of those things, then wouldn't it follow that we couldn't fully understand the creator? It seems appropriate to me that this first question we're asking has to it an element of mystery where it just can't fully be answered. Because we're finite and because God requires us to come to him by faith, there are some things that we can't fully understand. We can answer them in part, but not in whole. I was reading not too long ago that when a human is born, their brain weighs about 14 ounces. The average adult human brain weighs around 44 ounces. That's the size of a toaster, okay? Can we really expect to understand God with a 44-ounce brain? It'd be like trying to pour the ocean into a bottle of water. You just can't do it. So from the beginning, we have to understand that there are going to be some things that we're not going to have complete answers to. But we can have good answers, answers that God has revealed to us so that we can have faith. So Genesis 13, 14 begins with the Lord. But look at the next word, the Lord said. I think we should probably stop there. 
this phrase, the Lord said, occurs some 300 times in the Old Testament. God is continually speaking to his people in a miraculous and in an audible way. Sometimes it's through a vision, sometimes it's through an angel, but that's never happened to me. I'm not saying that God doesn't do that today, but, but it's never happened to me. I, I've never heard God's audible voice. I've never had an angel appear to me in the morning when I'm brushing my teeth. It just hasn't happened. And that brings up another question I think a lot of people have, and that is, why doesn't God just reveal himself? Have you ever wondered this? Why not just make it so obvious that he's out there and that he exists that there'd be no question? Why not talk to us in an an audible voice the way that he did in the Old Testament? Actually, people who would say that God doesn't exist are in the minority. Uh, This year, a recent Gallup poll in the United States found that 81% of the population believes that God exists. Now, this is sometimes called the ontological argument for God. It's this idea that because 98% of the people in every culture, in every country throughout human history have believed in the existence of a God, well, there's got to be a reason for that. And so it seems that God has revealed himself in some pretty convincing ways. Otherwise, why would so many people have believed in or searched for the truth about God? The Bible says that God has revealed himself through nature. Psalm 19, verses one through four. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And so through nature, God has revealed himself. The ontological argument is so many people believe in the existence of God, there must be a reason for that. The idea that God has revealed himself in nature is sometimes called the teleological argument. It's this idea that God has revealed himself clearly in nature. The amazing design of the world in which we live in demands that there be a designer. An example of this would be if the earth was 100 miles closer to the sun or 100 miles further away from the sun, then it wouldn't be able to support any life. Or the chances of a single DNA protein molecule forming by chance is 1 times 10 to the 243rd power. That's a 1 with 243 zeros behind it. And yet one single cell is comprised of millions of these protein molecules. And so you look at this world that we live in, and the teleological argument says it points to a designer. It points towards the existence of God. God has revealed himself in nature. Because of the advancements of science, it's interesting that that many scientists who still don't believe in God would argue for what they call intelligent design. Uh, Michael Denton, who is a non-theist, someone who doesn't believe in the existence of God, he wrote a book called Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. And he argues for intelligent design, but he doesn't believe in God. So listen to what he writes. He says, to common sense, it does indeed appear absurd to propose that chance could have thrown together devices of such complexity and ingenuity, that they appear to represent the very epitome of perfection. And he goes on to talk at great lengths at how at the cellular and molecular level, it's hard to believe that somebody, something, didn't design this. 
But after he makes this incredible argument for design, he comes to the conclusion of his book and he says, I have no way to explain it. And so people who don't even believe in God acknowledge there's some design in the universe. So God has revealed himself in some pretty clear ways. And yet if we're honest, I think a lot of us would say, God, why don't you make it clear like you did back then? God, why don't you appear right now and speak to all of us? That way we'd have no doubt. But again, remember what we've talked about. God wants us to come to him by faith. Hebrews eleven six, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, when you read through the Bible, you'll notice different times when God reveals himself to people. Remember that the, this book was written over thousands of years. The Old Testament alone was written over a span of 1,500 years. God really only reveals himself to a handful of people, so even back then it was rare. But here's a really important thing to notice. Even when God revealed himself to people, they oftentimes rejected him. Throughout Scripture, the problem was not that God didn't reveal himself. The problem was that the people refused to acknowledge his very clear presence. I'm guessing most of you can think of times in your life where God has made himself known to you. You had a sense that he was watching over you, that you weren't alone in this universe. The question is, will you seek him? Because the Bible promises that when we seek him with all of our heart, we'll find him. Well, we haven't made it very far in our story. We've only made it three words the Lord said, so let's keep going. Verse 14, when the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. After this brief paragraph, God gives Abraham a very clear and specific picture of what his future will look like. And it's probably pretty hard to believe because when Abraham would have heard this, he would have been around 80 years old. And so God's telling this 80-year-old man, hey, you're going to have more descendants than can be counted. And so I want to stop here and ask another question about God that many people have, and it's this. Is God all-knowing? Does God know everything that happens? Yes. And the word for this is omniscient. God knows everything that's ever happened. So you pick any day in history and God knows exactly what happened on that day. So you pick a day in 1100 AD and God knows on that day that a little girl in China fell and scraped her knee. God knows on that day that an old man in Russia died. God knows everything that happened on that day in 1100 AD. He knows the flight pattern of all the birds of that day. He knows the path that all the fish swam in the sea on that day in 1100 AD. He knows everything down to a molecular level of what happened on that day. He knows everything in the past. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing in your life is a secret from God. He knows everything that's ever happened to you. He knows all of it. God's not only aware of what's happened in the past, he knows everything that's happening right now. He knows everything that's happening in the present. 
Have you ever said anything like, he's as quick as a wink or as slow as a snail? Well, God knows that a wink takes a third of a second. He knows that a snail moves at 10 feet per hour. He knows why glue doesn't stick to the inside of the bottle. He knows what people in China call their nice dishes. He knows everything. That there's nothing that's hidden from him. He knows right now how fast your heart is beating. He knows the number of hairs on your head. God knows everything that's happening right now. Nothing escapes him. And part of God being omniscient means that he knows everything that's happening in the future. Listen to Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Nothing will will make God say, wow, I didn't see that coming. God's never caught off guard. He's never surprised. He knows who's going to win every presidential election and every Super Bowl from now until Jesus returns. He knows the color of hair and the names of your great, 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 great grandchildren. God knows everything that will happen. David says this in Psalm 139 to help us understand. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And so the Bible just makes it clear that God is all-knowing. He has knowledge of the past. He has current knowledge. And he also has foreknowledge of what's going to happen. Which leads me to another question. If God knows everything that's going to happen, do I have any free will? Is the future already determined, or do I have some choice in the matter? Well, let's go back to our story, because in our story, Abraham and Sarah still don't have a child. They know this is God's will for them. God said, you're going to have a kid. But month after month, they experience incredible frustration and disappointment. So Sarah decides she's going to help things along a little bit. And she makes what seems to us a ridiculous suggestion. She says to her husband, Abraham, I want you to sleep with my maid, Hagar, and she can have your child. I guess she's thinking that Hagar can kind of be a surrogate for their child, and in actuality, in ancient cultures, this wasn't uncommon. But chapter 16, verse 1 says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar, so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So he agrees with this ridiculous plan. He sleeps with Hagar. She conceives a child. And Hagar and Sarah, you're not going to believe this, but these two women don't get along. They don't like each other. And Sarah gets mad at Abraham because all of this has happened. And she says to Abraham, you're responsible for this misery that I'm suffering. Well, Abraham's a pretty smart husband. He's figured some things out. And so he says, you go do with Hagar whatever you want. Now, here's the question. What happened to God's plan? This isn't at all how he described things would happen for Abraham. He left this part out. It seemed cut and clear when, when God presented it to Abraham. So, so here's the question. Was this part of God's plan? Some people would say, yeah, it, it is. This is the way God intended it to be. 
Or was this God allowing man's free will to mess his plan that he had perfectly laid out? And I think that's a question that a lot of people struggle with. If everything that happens God knows about, then do I have any free choice in my life? That's an important question because if you think about it, doesn't it seem unjust that you could be rewarded or punished for a decision that you had no freedom to make? Or what about prayer? I mean, what's the point of praying if everything's already predetermined? If God knows everything that's gonna happen, why should we spend time praying? And what about the most basic idea of having a relationship with God? If we're all in this relationship with God against our will and because he chose it for us, then how can that even be a love relationship? Is it the most basic truth of a love relationship is that you're in it because you chose to be in it? I tell you, there are a lot of Christians who disagree on this balance between God's sovereignty and man's free will. It's just hard to fully understand how these two things completely interact because we've already said that God knows everything that's gonna happen. If that's true, then how can we also say by our own choices, we determine the future? There's two extremes in understanding this. Some people teach what is called, what is called causation. Causation is this idea that God has caused everything to happen. Every little thing God planned out and nothing happens in this world that God has not specifically caused to happen. Some people would teach that. There's another extreme out there called open theism. Open theism would say that God hasn't caused anything to happen. That the reason that God doesn't make himself more known in the universe is because he can't. He's not a part of this world unfolding in any way. And so there's these two extremes Causation and an open theism. And to be honest, this question could be debated endlessly. The Bible is full of examples where God has specifically made his will known. He's specifically chosen a person for a task. And yet there's a difference between choosing and forcing, right? A good example of this would be when I asked my wife to marry me. I knelt down, I got down on one knee, I pulled out the ring, and I asked her to be my wife. And that moment I was saying, I choose you. But I couldn't force her to be my wife. I could choose her, but she also had to choose me. And so we read about God choosing people, but there's a difference between choosing and coercing or forcing. I think a good example of this in scripture is the story of Esther. In Esther, the people of Israel are about ready to be executed by King Xerxes. He's going to put them all to death. But it turns out that King Xerxes is married to a Jewish woman named Esther. And so Queen Esther is thinking about going before the king and pleading for the life of her people, but she's a little afraid to do it, and she's thinking about not doing it. Because if she goes to the king and she has not been summoned, then he can execute her. So she's thinking about not doing it. And her her uncle Mordecai comes to her and tries to persuade her to do what he believes God has called her to do. Esther 4.14 says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. 
Mordecai says, one of the reasons God has put you in this place is for such a time as this. But if you choose not to do it, if you choose just to let things happen, God is still going to save us. God's still going to accomplish his purpose. What's that tell us? It tells us that there can be this harmony between God's sovereignty and man's free will. In fact, God will work things out for his purposes, what he wants to happen in this world, whether or not we're on board with it. He's not dependent upon our choices. And so we read that that Esther goes ahead, she appears before the king, and she ends up saving the lives of her people. I want you to know that I fully believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is in control of everything that happens in life. But I think that his control sometimes is because he causes those things to happen and sometimes because he allows them to happen. He permits them to happen. He doesn't step in. And I think that's the situation here in Genesis. God has allowed this to happen. In a sense, God's foreknowledge means that that everything in the future is certain. But it's not his foreknowledge that's causing these things. But because he knows about them, he can use them to accomplish his ultimate purpose and his ultimate good. So let's get back to our story. Hagar is pregnant and Sarah is despising her. So Hagar runs away. An angel of the Lord finds her and says to her in verse 8, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord told her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. You know what I thought of when I first read that? God gave her some very specific instructions. Here's Hagar at a point in her life where she doesn't know what she's going to do next. She's run away. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know what path to choose. She doesn't know what her next step is. And God comes to her and says, this is what you're to do. And I've had different times in my life where I would have really, really appreciated that. Have you ever been in a situation where, God, am I supposed to go to this college? God, am I supposed to marry this person? God, am I supposed to be in in this career? And you have these big questions about God's will for your life, and and you're afraid. Hey, if I do this wrong, if I go down the wrong path, I'm going to mess everything up. It's going to have this domino effect in my life where, where things will never be the same because I miss God's will at this point. So here's the question that, that many of us have. It's how can I know God's will for my life? I think there are a few ways that we try to determine his will. One is by feelings. We want to feel right about a decision. And so we wait for a feeling, and we've got that good feeling. We say, okay, I feel good about this. This is what God wants me to do. But you know this. Feelings can be very unreliable. I mean, you could ask my wife. I've never felt lost, right? Feelings can be very unreliable. Another thing we try to do is, is we, try to, we try to look for a formula from God, where God says, here's A, here's B, here's C, And that's just not the way that God works a lot of the time. He gives us, I believe, an incredible amount of freedom to operate within his will. 
And so sometimes we come to God and we say, God, what should I do? And I think God says, I don't care. You decide. And what you choose to decide, as long as you're walking in obedience to me, as long as you're following my revealed will in Scripture about the way to live your life, you choose either path, and I will bless you as you go along that path. If I had to narrow down knowing God's will to one word, here's the word I would choose. Relationship. If I go out to breakfast with my wife and we sit down at the table and she says, I'm going to use the restroom, and the waiter comes over and he asks, what would you like to drink? I don't need to say, I need to wait for my wife to come back so I know that what she wants. No, I know what she wants. She wants coffee. I know that because there's a relationship there. And the key to knowing God's will is not to look for this formula. It's not to wait for the right feeling. It is to know God. And as you know him, you start to have this sense. You start to be more in tune with the Holy Spirit in your life. And he reveals what you should do in certain situations. God has given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his revealed will in the word of God. And he's given us the wisdom of other believers. He's given us a conscience within ourselves. We have an innate sense of what's right and wrong. But you know what? the most important decisions in life, he has revealed to us in Scripture. It is God's will that you have a close relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. It's his will that your relationship with Jesus be more important than anything else in your life. It is God's will that you live a life of holiness and righteousness, not because you're trying to earn your way into heaven, but out of gratitude for the grace that he has given you. It is God's will for you to forgive and pray for people who have hurt you. It is God's will that you serve others and you live a life of selflessness. So Hagar receives these really clear instructions from God and she goes back. And we pick up in chapter 17. By this time, Abraham is 99 years old. He and his wife, Sarah, as you can imagine, are way beyond their childbearing years. I'm sure they had completely given up on God's promise. But God appears to them again and tells them, you're going to have a child. And when Sarah hears this, remember, she's 90 years old. Guess what she does? She laughs. That can't be possible. And listen to what God says in Genesis 18, 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah shall have a son. This question that God asks of himself is a question I think many of us have. Is anything too hard for God? God, are you able to heal this marriage? God, are you able to put back together the broken pieces of my heart? Lord, can you mend my life? God, I've made a mess of things. Can you ever use me again? The Bible teaches us that God is all-powerful. That means that his power is all-encompassing. We say that he's omnipotent. There's nothing beyond his power. Now, there are some people who think that they're clever enough to trick the God who gave them the ability to think, and so they'll ask some ridiculous questions. They'll say, well, God, can you make a rock so big that you can't move it? God, can, can you make a circle square? God, can you make a four-sided triangle? It's ridiculous. It's like asking, what does yellow smell like? 
You can't do what actually can't be done. But God can do everything that's possible, even if it's impossible for us to do it. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah paints a picture of God to help us understand his power. And God asks this question through Isaiah. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Sometimes you, you might want to try this, this. See how much water you can hold in the hollow of your hand. I tried this, and uh, I, it, it can get like a, a teaspoon of water, okay? And Isaiah says that's how God measures the oceans of the world. We know that almost 75% of the earth is covered in water, some 6,000 feet deep. So, so God pours a little water out of the palm of his hand, and, and there's the Pacific Ocean. And, and a little bit more, and there's the Gulf of Mexico. That's how big God is. And so his power is beyond our comprehension. If God wanted to, with his bare hands, he could lift up a mountain to see what was underneath it. He could play kickball with our planet. With the flick of his finger, he could send our our solar system spinning out into space. This is the God with with, with with a few words spoke our universe into existence. And so we've answered a number of questions about God in a short amount of time. But I've got to tell you, the breathtaking thing to me about God is not that he's all-knowing. It's not that he's all-powerful. It's that this all-knowing and all-powerful God is all-loving and that he's all-forgiving to anyone who comes to him, no matter how small or sinful they may be. My mind, my my 44-ounce brain will somehow accept the fact that that God knows all things, past, present, and future. Somehow I'm able to believe that God just has always been. My mind will will buy into the fact that God is all-powerful, but but do you know what's difficult for me to just accept? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I don't understand it. It's a question I cannot answer. Why does God love us so much? Why does this all-powerful, all-knowing God care so much about us? I don't fully understand it. But I thank him every day for the grace that he has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you you have given us good answers to so many of the questions that we have in life. But God, there is a mystery, a sense of mystique to it all because there's no way that we as the creation can fully know the infinite mind of you, our creator. And God, I pray that the more that that we dive into a loving relationship with you, the more that our minds would expand to how big and how great you are. That you are all powerful, you are all knowing, you are all loving and you are all forgiving. God, that's too wonderful for me. And so today, God, we just come before you and say you are God and we are not. We come today thankful, God, that you love us, that you you showed grace for us through Jesus. God, help us to receive that love and accept that love in our lives today. And if there's anybody who's here today and and they had questions about God and they still have questions. God, would, would they today realize that you were creator, that you have created us, 
and you have created us to be in a loving relationship with you and you made that possible through sending Jesus Christ to the cross to pay for our sins. God, I pray that anybody who has not ever done so would would put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would identify with Christ through the waters of baptism, that they would be raised to newness of life, and God, that, that they would walk out in freedom. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.